Welcome to Abergavenny Baptist Church. Thank you, everybody. It's lovely to be with you. Great morning. Beautiful place you live in here in Abergavenny, isn't it? And what a fantastic group of kids. I notice they're all young ladies. There was one young man. He's got quite a field to play as he grows up, doesn't he, really? But it really is good to be able to be with you this morning and to bring you greetings, really, from other churches in the, the South Wales Baptist Association. We stretch from the bridge, and actually, yes, up your way, right over to, to Broadhaven, up and down more valleys than I ever knew existed before I came to this part of Wales, and around this land of South Wales. But it's sometimes just so important, isn't it, to recognise that we are part of a bigger family, and that's just the Baptist family, let alone other parts of the Christian family, and that we're part of this great global family, and indeed that as we come to worship week by week, we join with the angels and the archangels and all the company of heaven. But it's lovely to be with you here this morning. I'm going to read to you from Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, and from verse 25, Peter's Confession of Christ. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Thanks be to God for his word. I um, have a friend, I'll call her this morning Deborah. She's a Methodist minister, and she's married to another Methodist minister, and they have two children, both now grown up and at university. They're an incredibly gifted couple. You know, they're committed, they're capable, dedicated followers of Jesus. And all her life, my friend Deborah has had to struggle with periods of depression that are so severe that they've led to her being hospitalized. And it's one of those repeating patterns, you know? 
she begins to get better, she gets back into, into life and into work, and then the paralyzing depression creeps back. And they've prayed. Well, goodness knows they've prayed. We've all prayed. But still, the depression comes again and again and again. And it seems such a waste, doesn't it? I think of another man, Tom. Tom and his wife lost their eldest child, a daughter, when she was aged 32 to cancer. She was a doctor. She was married. She had two little children, like the ones we've seen at the front this morning. And her death broke her parents' heart. Of course it did. Then a few years later, Tom's wife was diagnosed with colon cancer, and she died, aged just 64. And I remember Tom saying to me, Susan, I never thought when I became a Christian that life would be a bed of roses. But I did think we'd at least be given a fair wind. And I'm sure you can tell your stories, because there are so many stories, aren't there? And what do we do when God disappoints us? What do we do when God doesn't do what we think God should do? That's the question that the Apostle Peter is faced with in the passage from Mark's Gospel that we're looking at this morning. As you read Mark's Gospel, for the first eight chapters, you know it's all going so well. And Jesus is taking Galilee by storm from one end of the region to the other. He's setting people free from crippling illnesses of all sorts. He's giving people back their lives. He's restoring them to their families, to their communities. And people are flocking to him. And then they reached the villages around Caesarea Philippi, right up at the northern tip of Galilee, what we now call the Golan Heights. And they stop. And you can imagine Jesus looking back over Galilee, over the way they've come, and on into the far distance towards Jerusalem. And he decides it's uh, time to test public opinion. So he asks them, what's the word on the street then? What are people saying about me? Who do people say I am? And of course, people are saying all sorts of things. Some of them are saying John the Baptist, some saying Elijah, others that you're one of the prophets. And what about you, he says? Who do you reckon I am? And out of Peter's mouth comes this amazing revelation. You are the Christ in Hebrew, Messiah. And you'd expect Jesus to be thrilled, wouldn't you? You know, hallelujah, somebody's seen it. But no, instead he goes on to insist that they tell no one. And then he goes on to tell them that the Messiah must suffer and be rejected and die and then rise three days later. But you know, we are so used to this story that I think it is impossible for us to really understand, to get a sense of the shock and the horror of what these disciples, what Peter was hearing. You see, there were lots of ideas around in those days about what the Messiah would do. Many people thought that he would be a great political, a great military leader who would come to defeat Israel's enemies to restore the nation's identity and sense of pride, all sorts of ideas. But everyone 
at the very least expected that the Messiah was going to make things better, a lot better. And here was Jesus talking about being rejected and about dying. And would you notice that Peter's so shocked by that that he doesn't even seem to have heard the bit about rising three days later. But for Peter, it's as if he has crashed into a brick wall and everything in him revolts. And the language invites us to imagine him almost squaring up to Jesus, taking him by the lapels. Jesus, are you mad? That cannot, that will not happen. And then comes Jesus' stinging rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. And it's as if Jesus is back in the desert, battling with the devil, with the demonic voice that would lure him onto an easier path, a more comfortable path. Goodness knows the path we would all prefer. Get behind me. It could mean get out of my sight, get out of my way, stop being an obstacle to me. But it also literally means get behind me. Behind me where a follower belongs. Peter, do not presume to teach me. You have rightly seen that I am the Christ, but you're still only halfway there. Now it's time to learn what that means. What do we do when God doesn't act like we think God should act? I have to confess, I sometimes wish we could be a bit more like Peter or like the people in the Psalms, brutally honest with God, throwing our questions, our pain, our anger at God, wrestling with him. And sometimes, like Jacob, if we're honest, coming away with a limp. But when the wrestling's done, like Peter, we're faced with a choice. Will we keep on following? Will we allow God to take us deeper, to take us further beyond what we presently understand? Will we trust and follow Jesus over the horizon? And that's a big step, isn't it? Because if we're honest, we all feel safer when we feel as if we're running our own lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a leader in the Confessing Church in Germany in the 1930s, says this, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Sounds remarkably like the words in our reading this morning, doesn't it? The words of Jesus when Jesus says, Whoever wants to save his life, to hold on to it, to keep it safe, will lose it. But whoever loses his life, whoever gives his life away for me and for the gospel, will save it. Now, the death that Jesus and Bonhoeffer are talking about isn't usually death in the physical sense, at least not primarily. First and foremost, it's the death of self. You know, self-reliance, self-trust, self-direction. Here in Wales, we're proud to live in a Celtic nation. And the early Celtic Christians spoke about two kinds of martyrdom. They spoke about red martyrdom, the martyrdom of blood, of death. 
and they spoke about white martyrdom, which was a way of demonstrating and growing in that deep trust in God. And this is what they did. Do you all know what a coracle is? Can't live in Wales and not know what a coracle is. Uh, it's one of those, I, I, I hesitate to call it a boat because it looks too fragile to be a boat. You know, those sort of vessels, I suppose, um, very fragile looking vessels. And I don't know how you get them to go in a straight line because they're just, yes, round and round. You see them on the rivers and the estuaries in West Wales, don't you? Well, our early Celtic Christians, fathers and mothers, would get into their coracle and they would push out from the shore into the ocean. And then they would trust the wind and the tides and the currents to take them wherever God wanted them to go. And that's a picture somehow of what it feels as if God asks us to do sometimes. To trust him and to follow Jesus over the horizon beyond the limits of our understanding. Like, of course, one day we'll all be asked to do on that day when we do physically die and follow Jesus over that horizon. And we'll do that, yes, partly, because I guess at that stage we have little choice. But we also do it knowing that that is the way to resurrection. That is the way to God's open future full of hope. But it's not just when we die. It's something God asks us to do in this life too. To trust and to follow when the tough times come. Or when people hurt us. You know, I've come to the conclusion that forgiveness, forgiving people, forgiving ourselves maybe is ultimately a step of trust in God. It's entrusting that person, that situation, and all the hurt that we feel, and, and all those feelings that we struggle with, that we wish we didn't have. It's coming to entrust that, and entrusting it again and again and again to God, and trusting God to do what's right with it all. This challenge to trust and to follow comes to us personally. And it comes to us as a society as well. You know, whatever you make of Brexit, whatever you make of our current political landscape, we live in days of confusion and anxiety, don't we? We live in times of austerity. We've seen, uh, we've seen some of it on our screens this morning, and it creeps closer, not that degree yet. But did you hear on the news a couple of weeks ago that life expectancy in Wales fell last year? And anyway, we know, don't we, as we just look around, that for most of us, our kids can't really expect the sort of retirements that many of us can enjoy. And it gets worse when you really stop and think about it because we are in days when there is a crisis in mental health among our young people. And not only our young people. I guess many of you will know what the single 
biggest cause of death among men under the age of 45 in our country is. Do you know what that single biggest cause of death is? Suicide. Ugh. And that apparently peaks between the ages of 42 and 45. Things are not all well in our society. And that's before we lift up our eyes to the mass displacement of people across our world, fleeing violence, fleeing hunger. And before we think about the leadership of people like Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, and then we look to the effects of global warming, I'm sorry, if we go on long enough, we can end up really feeling quite depressed, can't we? But whatever way we look, we live, we live in increasingly unstable times. And in these days when so much is being shaken, one of the things that's happening is that God is exposing the idols that we as a society worship and trust in. The idol of consumerism. And of course, we're discovering that eventually consumerism consumes us. The idol of individualism. In African societies, they still have this concept of Ubuntu. People say, I belong, therefore I am. I, I, I know who I am because I am part of a community. I'm part of something bigger. And so they go on to say, so how can one be happy if others are not? Do you remember those days when, when we talked about our children we usually meant all the children of our community, of our town, even of our nation, our children. But I don't think I'm wrong in saying that today when people talk about our children, what they usually mean is my children. Because in this society we live in, for whatever reason, we can't worry about the rest. You see, individualism breeds fear. And fear breeds selfishness, and selfishness destroys us. And it is all such a contrast with the way that Jesus calls us to live. Whoever seeks to save his life, to protect his life, to hold on to his life, to keep it safe, will find that they lose it. That's not a threat, it's just a description. But, but hear the promise? Whoever loses his life, whoever gives it away for me and for this good news, will find life. This challenge to trust God and to follow Jesus comes to us in our personal lives. It comes to us as a society. And, you know, it comes to us in these days as church, too. I was talking to a minister a couple of weeks ago of what uh, would still today be seen as a large and healthy and flourishing church. And he was confessing his frustration, not so much with people, but with the way, to use his words, church isn't working. What he meant was that no matter how many events they put on, no matter how welcoming and loving they were, no matter how much they were praying, Church, like we do it, just isn't attracting people in the way we long for it to do. Oh, some, yes, look at your kids, that's fantastic. But when you lift up your eyes and look around us, not really. And that in spite of the fact that as you talk to people outside the church, 
So many are quietly desperate. And so many are really curious about Jesus, about what it might mean for them to follow Jesus. But somehow, we're not connecting like we long to do. Do you remember when the Channel Tunnel was being built? you remember the way they started digging from France and from Kent? And do you remember that day when they were due to meet in the middle and, and, and they were going to break through and this was when they were going to discover just how accurate all of their uh, computations had been? Somehow, in that picture, there's a picture for us as a church, isn't there? You know, on the one hand, we have church holding out the life that there is in Jesus. And on the other hand, we have people searching for what we're offering. But for so much of life, it's as if we don't overlap, we miss each other. And as church, that's a big challenge for us. And to be honest, we don't always know what to do. I sometimes feel as I travel around and listen to so many people, it's as if God is taking us to the end of where our gifts and our skills and our experience and our ability to work even harder can take us. But the good news is that that place of helplessness is actually the place of hope. Do you remember back in July, those 12 young boys um, in Thailand, the footballers, who were trapped with their coach in, in a cave deep underground, And do you remember how they had to be brought out through a labyrinth of tunnels which were dark and twisting and absolutely full of water? And many of these boys couldn't swim. Now, I'm I'm a reasonably, I'm a reasonable swimmer. I won't say I'm a reasonably strong swimmer. I'm a reasonable swimmer as long as my head's out of the water. I'm one of those people, as soon as the water goes up my nose, I panic and I sink. So you'll understand that I had a a, a great feeling for these 12 young lads who were trapped. But you see, for those 12 boys, if they were going to have a future at all, they had to find the courage to make that long, dark, enclosed underwater journey. And that's where so many people are today. And in some ways, that's where we are as church as well. You know, the one thing I'm grateful for in life is, uh, well, one of the things I'm grateful for in life is that I can't remember being born. I don't know if there's anybody here who can remember being born. They say we may do somewhere, but not consciously. And I'm very glad that I can't remember being born, because if I think about it, it must be a very confusing and frightening experience, mustn't it? You know, um, being pushed through what we now call the birth canal, not knowing which way is up, not knowing what it's all about or what's at the end of it or if there is an end of it, and, and these times when it just gets so painful. And sometimes I think that's a bit of a picture of what's happening to us as church as well. Because God is birthing us into a new chapter of being his people for his world. And the good news is that God is doing it. And although, yes, sometimes it's confusing and painful, our part is to cooperate with what God is doing, to trust and to follow into God's future. 
going back to those boys in the cave, the thing that made it possible for them to make that journey was that each was strapped to a diver who knew the way through. This morning, whatever it is we are going through, through his death and resurrection, Jesus has strapped himself to us. We are strapped to Jesus, and he knows the way through. He knows the way through for us. And then, of course, our job as followers of Jesus is to be like those divers for others, to go and to strap ourselves to people, if that's what they will let us do, to go and join with people, to walk with people, to swim alongside people through the dangers towards that future full of hope that is God's promise for us all, to be bonded to them, to be strapped to them until they learn to trust the Jesus who is strapped to them through us and can be strapped to him for themselves until they come to know and trust and follow this Jesus for themselves. But that's where we are, isn't it, so often? In dark and difficult places, but knowing that we are strapped to the one who knows the way through. I began by telling you about my friend Deborah. A couple of years ago, we were in church together, and uh, we were singing one of those new worship songs, the song Oceans. Do you know Oceans? It's a hill song song. Some of you will. It has beautiful words, and it has a haunting chorus. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you will lead me. And knowing what Deborah struggles with and watching her singing those words was just so moving. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. So where is God wanting to lead us beyond the borders of our trust in him? We're going to take a few moments of quietness to sit in God's presence, to allow his spirit in such love to search our hearts and our minds. And as we do that, we're going to listen to just some of that song. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Father, we've sung this morning of your reckless love for us. And we thank you that you never ask anything of us but out of such love. And so we pray that you will give us the courage to trust you. The courage to let you take us by the hand and lead us over whatever horizon it is. You would have us follow you over. Give us the trust 
in the power of your love that we need as we surrender afresh to you this day. And Father, we would ask for one more thing. We would ask, please, recognizing that this is a risky prayer, that you will touch our hearts with just something of your love for those people that we live and work and walk among, that we may be willing to walk with them over the borders of whatever horizons you are calling them, that they too might in the midst of their journey through life come to discover your reckless love for them too. But in this place, we thank you that you are the God who has demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt how deep and strong and powerful is the love that binds you to us in Jesus. And for this, we want to offer you more thanks than we can find words to express as we give ourselves to you in gratitude. In his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about Abergavenny Baptist Church, please visit our website at abergavennybaptist.co.uk.